We're going to fast forward a bit now and take you to the 1940s, February 18th, 1943, to be exact. Franklin Delano Roosevelt is president, and the United States is at war with Germany and Japan. Meanwhile, in the halls of Congress, one woman is about to deliver a historic address. When she began speaking, what was most striking to most people listening on the radio and to the lawmakers themselves was her elocution. This is Karen Leong talking about Mei Ling Song, or Madame Chiang Kai-shek, as she was known to many Americans. She was the wife of China's nationalist leader. And she had this really crisp elocution, and she also had this slight southern accent. And faith that devotion to common principles eliminates differences in race, and that identity of ideals is the strongest possible solvent of racial dissimilarities. In fact, Eleanor Roosevelt even reported that she even said to some of the lawmakers after her speech in the House that she said, I am a Southerner. And she had this slight Georgia twang to her voice. Mei-Ling Song's address to Congress was unprecedented. She was the first private citizen and only the second woman to address both houses. It was all part of Song's goodwill tour throughout the U.S. in the winter and spring of 1943. It was a tour that would change the way many Americans viewed China and what the future could look like for Chinese Americans. But this 1943 trip, it wasn't Song's first time in the United States. Mailing Song was born to Charlie Song and his wife. And Charlie Song himself, her father, had lived in North Carolina for a bit. Um, he came to the United States um, some people say as a stowaway, other people say as apprentice, and he eventually ended up in Wilmington, North Carolina, where he became part of the Methodist Church and was educated eventually at Vanderbilt University. He returned to China, where he um, was married, and his whole upbringing and influence by the United States was apparent in how he raised his family. All of six of his children went to elite United States universities. So this influence that her father had, having lived in the United States, his work with American missionaries, all very much meant that Mei Ling Song was exposed to many forms of U.S. culture even before she herself went to the United States. And she went to Wellesley, correct? Yes, she attended Wellesley. Her two older sisters went to Wesleyan. And so her first arrival, her first destination in the United States was Macon, Georgia. And of course, this is a time when most Chinese immigrants were banned from the United States. Mm -hmm. Only students, teachers, diplomats, travelers, um, and visitors could enter the U.S. How did this policy impact Mei Ling Song and her family. So what's really interesting is that even though Mei Ling Song's family was quite wealthy, and at the time, the exclusion had some leeway for the families of merchants and wealthy Chinese, her older sister, when she first came to the United States and tried to enter the United States to attend Wesleyan, was stopped and detained for two weeks. She was not allowed to leave and enter the United States because they didn't believe she was actually a student, even though she had all the proper paperwork. 
So they held her, and her father had to, through his connections, purchase a Portuguese student visa in order for Eileen to to enter. So that had to have affected Meiling's own experience when she and her other sister, Qingling, entered uh, some time later. But having that experience and understanding the humiliation that China faced from the United States being singled out for this restrictive immigration really had a bearing on how she experienced the United States and even her later visit. After graduation, Mei Ling Song returned to China, where she married General Chiang Kai-shek. This put her in a powerful position to help shape American attitudes towards China and Chinese people. It's important to think about the fact that when people think about modernity in relation to China, many of the stereotypes of Chinese women was that they had their foot bound, that they didn't have a lot of freedom, that they suffered under great patriarchy. So to have this woman who was married to the leader of China being able to travel about, she was wearing pants even before, you know, when she came to the United States and visited her alma mater, Wellesley, she was the first woman on campus to be wearing pants. And that was really this marker of the modernization of China. And she became, yeah, this very potent symbol, not only of Americanization and modernity, but also the influence of Christianity. This image was a radical departure from what had come before, As you just heard Nancy Davis explain, many 19th century Americans saw China as an exotic but primitive place. And those stereotypes, they served a particular purpose when it came to immigration. This all fed in not only into images of China, but also how it contributed to the passage of Chinese exclusion and the idea that Chinese could never be assimilated in good Americans, meaning they couldn't really be civilized and upright Christian standing people, as many people assumed Americans should be. Although those stereotypes persisted, Karen says Japan's 1931 invasion into the Chinese territory of Manchuria started to change the narrative. They created a puppet state, and there became this real conflict between Japan and China. And many of the missionaries to the U.S. were part of publicizing the struggle China was having against the Japanese. But for the most part, Japan was still seen as the more modern nation. And the United States and other countries did not respond to this invasion and incursion on Chinese soil much to the chagrin of the Chinese. The Chinese also were having internal conflicts between the Communists and the Nationalist Party. For a while at the turn of the century, around 1911 with Sun Yat-sen, there was this real fascination that China might support women's equality. There was, in the provisional Republican constitution, there was a clause about equality for all women and minorities in China. But that was not part of the ultimate constitution. But that moment really began to capture some of the curiosity about China and how could it be that they would even talk about equality when they were seen as already so uncivilized. So it's really important that this particular figure, a Chinese woman who for so long, Chinese women had for so long been sort of representative of the most alien aspects of the backward culture that was China, Mm -hmm. that she herself represents this modernization, a figure that Americans could look up to and admire and see themselves almost in her. It's it's important that it's it's a Chinese woman, not just a 
you know, not, not just a, just any Chinese person, but a Chinese woman, because Chinese women in particular had exemplified the most alien and backward aspects of what Americans thought of as Chinese culture. Would you, does that seem right to you? Absolutely. And, you know, Madam Chiang Kai-shek, you know, this sort of persona that was cultivated as this public figure for American consumption and others' consumption around the world. She was credited with converting the general to Christianity in 1929. She was seen as this active force for modernization. So if we can get back to the 1943 visit, what was she hoping to accomplish with the visit? She was hoping to accomplish many things. First and foremost, she was trying to sway American popular opinion and then U.S. federal policy towards China during World War II. She was trying to make the case that China deserved greater attention and investment against the war against Japan. And it was very clear at this time that China was trying to get the attention and resources they felt they needed to fight Japan. And they felt that FDR and his administration was really favoring Europe and the continent in terms of the Hitler-first policy. She was also trying to further establish her contribution to Chinese leadership in the nationalist government. She was asking her husband to trust her in terms of handling the United States. And she also was trying to prove a point in terms of China being equal to the United States and equal to Britain. She encountered a lot of American arrogance when she was in the United States. She remembered how her father was treated by U.S. missionaries. And she also remembered how imperialist policies towards China, as early as the Opium Wars, had really put China in a position of international weakness vis-a-vis Japan and other nations. And she and others very much resented that. So the trip entailed a lot of traveling around, a lot of speeches. If I was in the crowd at one of her speeches, could you describe what it was like? Would there be a lot of people? Where might it have been held? Was there a lot of pageantry? So it depended on where she was in the tour. So yes, she started in Washington, D.C., and then she took a train trip across the United States, ultimately ending up in L.A. She spoke at Madison Square Garden. She spoke at Veterans Stadium in Chicago. She spoke to the Longshoremen's Union Hall in San Francisco, which was not an expected visit. And she went to Macon, Georgia, and spoke there. So she went to a variety of places for different reasons. She went to the Thunderbird Training Academy in Arizona. But when she spoke at New York, in New York and when she spoke in Chicago and in Los Angeles at the Hollywood Bowl, those were very large, sold-out crowds with quite a bit of pageantry. The uh, Hollywood Bowl, because it was in Hollywood and David O. Selznick produced it, was a bit over the top. Um, it was sort of this like quasi good earth chronology all the way up to modern China pageant that took place. But she very much had different speeches that she made. And her speech to Congress, for example, was all about reminding the United States about the greatness of U.S. democracy and the racial equality it included. She talked about seeing the different European immigrants of the United States and how they all were considered American and equal. 
And in many ways, she was trying to speak out about the promise of democracy and what those promises might mean globally to include China and other places. Okay, so after she gives this speech, it's printed in the newspaper, it's it's played on the radio. Um, how did the American public respond to Song's image and message? What sorts of things were people saying about her? Many newspapers were claiming her as American. They were talking about how she was more American than Americans themselves. In fact, before her speech, a few days before, some congressmen even inquired of the State Department whether they could give her an honorary U.S. citizenship. That is so important because this was in the age of Chinese exclusion when Asians were excluded from naturalized citizenship. So they were saying, is there any way we can circumvent that and give her honorary U.S. citizenship? That was an incredible marker of how much Americans really saw her as American, and they were taking pride in their influence in the United States culture and democratic influence on her, and therefore her influence on China. And in fact, that very day after she gave her speech in the House, Martin Kennedy, a representative, introduced a bill to repeal Chinese exclusion. And this is what he said. And this is, I think, very telling because this is also what other editorials around the nation were writing about her. He said, We welcome you also as a daughter is welcomed by her foster mother to the land where you received an American education, where you spent years far more carefree than those of late, and where by your charm, your modesty, your intellectual attainments, you won the hearts of so many. I take this auspicious occasion in your gracious presence as an indication of my unbounded admiration of a nation's courage which has amazed the world to introduce this day a bill to grant the Chinese rights of entry to the United States and rights of citizenship. So immediately in response to her speech, in response to her demonstrating the influence of an American education, he introduces this law saying that Chinese should have a right to become U.S. citizens. She is proof embodied that the Chinese can become American, whereas Chinese exclusion had been based on the assumption that Chinese never could assimilate, could never be American. Turns out there was tremendous support for Kennedy's bill in Congress. And on December 27, 1943, President Roosevelt signed the bill that repealed the Chinese exclusion laws. He said it was a pivotal moment in correcting the, quote, historic mistake of Chinese exclusion. As for Madame Chiang Kai-shek, in many ways, 1943 is just the beginning of her story. So, of course, just six years after Madame Chiang Kai-shek's visit to the United States, China undergoes a very dramatic revolution Mm -hmm. and becomes the People's Republic of China. Mm -hmm. The nationalist government with Madame Chiang Kai-shek and her husband flee to Taiwan and establish the -hmm. Republic of China. What impact did the communist revolution have on Americans' perceptions of China just on the heels of this very triumphant, um, you know, enraptured visit uh, by Madame Chiang Kai-shek just six years before. It really changed this view that China, again, was seen with suspicion. That 
this um, turn to communism in some ways confirmed popular ideas that China cannot be trusted. But I'd like to point out that this happened even sooner than the 1950 and the fall of China to the communists, as they talk about it, that Eleanor Roosevelt in 1944, when Madame Chiang Kai-shek came back trying to seek assistance, you know, she even said that Madame Chiang Kai-shek, and this is a quote, although educated in the United States, had quite naturally reverted to Chinese ways of thinking when she returned to China. And this idea that the United States could be so fickle in its admiration for the celebrity persona of this Americanized Chinese woman, and it could be so easily flipped into we cannot trust this Chinese woman because she is, after all, Chinese, I think reflects very well this ongoing battle for legitimacy that Chinese people have fought for in the United States to be accepted as equals. And as Americans. And as Americans, you know, if we're talking about Chinese Americans and Chinese immigrants in the United States, it very much affected, again, how the United States federal government viewed Chinese. They were, again, seen with great suspicion. There was this question of whether Chinese in the United States now, Chinese Americans were actually communists. And this suspicion, and again, this reflects this ongoing way in which how Chinese in the United States, Chinese Americans who were born and raised in the United States even, are so associated with China. And it's a national, about nationality and race combined, that somehow if they are of Chinese heritage, they must automatically be Chinese in their hearts as well. And there's this idea that they cannot see that people could be born in the United States, could be loyal to the United States, could love democracy if China as a nation suddenly now was communist. Karen Leong is an associate professor of women and gender studies and Asian Pacific American studies at Arizona State University. She's also the author of The China Mystique, Pearl S. Buck, Anna Mae Wong, Mailing Song, and the Transformation of American Orientalism. 